Well, good morning. We want to welcome you to Living Stones Church this morning. And uh, already you can see that we have nobody in the uh, audience today because we're under uh, new COVID restrictions. So I want to just uh, want to express, number one, regarding the prayer meeting, because we can't have people here, we're going to just do it on Zoom and uh, you can get a hold of that material on our website, how to join us on Tuesday night for the prayer meeting. And I also want to just uh, say happy Mother's Day to all our mothers out there this morning. And we're excited that you have joined in our service today. We're going to prepare for communion right now. And we did send out a little uh, notification to our church family. So if you want to grab grape juice or some juice and a cracker or something, we're going to partake in communion this morning. And I want to just uh, mention how profound it really is when we gather together here uh, and partake in communion. Jesus' sacrifice was the ultimate and perfect sacrifice. And it was so sufficient that not only did it uh, address sin once and for all at the end of the age, there's no longer any need for sacrifices. Jesus' ability to deal with a sin issue... The Bible says that he literally took away our sins. In the Old Testament, they kept reminding themselves of their sins over and over again. But in the New Testament, we have this beautiful picture. Jesus Christ is our substitute before Almighty God. And so you and I are reminding ourselves that the reason we have a relationship with God is because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, he broke it and said, uh, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Father, we thank you for this bread that represents your broken body, a perfect sacrifice. You gave yourself willingly for us, Lord, dying in our place. And right now, Lord, we make this amazing exchange which continually is beyond my understanding how you would give us your perfect righteousness and take on our sinfulness. Lord, thank you for this amazing gift of forgiveness and redemption in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's eat the bread together. It says in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Lord, we thank you for this cup that speaks of the shedding of your blood, blood, Lord. It really speaks of the loss of your life, the giving of your life in exchange for our life. And, Lord, we thank you for that amazing gift And now we pray that every possible benefit of the new covenant that you have procured for us, we would now receive healing, forgiveness, and your amazing blessings, favor, and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's drink the cup together. I'm just going to have, we have our worship team with us here this morning. I'm going to have you stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. We're going to pray for our mothers in particular today. You know, the Bible says to honor your father and your mother. And, you know, regardless of uh, the context and circumstances, and we can go on and talk about all the uh, disappointments uh, in humanity, maybe a you know, not having a child, and all the rest of it that goes on in in our world, a broken, fallen world. But let's just turn to those that, you know, that have really bore us, and uh, let's just pray for them that we would honor them and ask God's grace and blessing to be upon their lives. And maybe some of them are in heaven already. We just thank you, Lord, that you have provided uh, a mother And uh, I just pray, maybe it's a spiritual mom or a physical mom, but the one that we relate to that nurtured our souls. And I ask today, Lord, that you would bless them in a supernatural, abundant way today, Father, that they would sense 
even in this time of isolation, Lord, that they would sense your grace, your favor, your goodness, your love, your mercy. And I, I just ask, Lord, that you would move in their lives in the days to come, Father. And I, I pray for a new day to be born, Father, a day when we can relate to one another freely again, a day when we can hunger moms and spend time in their very presence, Lord. And we just thank you for that beautiful gift, the gifts of human relationship, Father, that you create for humanity. You designed us to relate to each other. Lord, speedily bring that day when we can experience that together in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have us turn in our Bibles this morning to uh, 1 Peter. Uh, I know this is not a, a Mother's Day message, but... Uh, when we're talking about love, you know, I think most of us could honestly say that we received uh, a measure of God's love through our mothers. And so I think in that sense, this is an appropriate message. But I've entitled this message, All We Need Is Love. And I know back in the day, it uh, became a very popular song by the Beatles. I mean, the culture was crying out. You know, there's a desire in every human heart to be loved. I think it's one of the most fundamental human needs. David Helm shares a story when he was a middle school student living in the state of Illinois. And this was just after the Vietnam conflict. His father taught at Judson College and his father's office overlooked the Fox River. And it was there that David watched as one young man would continually come out during the winter months and start caring for the ducks along the banks of the river, breaking ice, giving them water, throwing them food. And in short, he did all that he could do to sustain their life. He is one of the students there at the college. And so curious, uh, David asked his father, he said, do you know what he's doing and why does that young person continually go out there and care for those ducks? Kind of a younger gentleman. And he says, I'll never forget the story my dad told me. He said he had, this young man had just returned from the war in Vietnam and that ducks had actually saved his life. You see, his unit had been ambushed and many of his friends had been killed in that ambush while he himself had not been shot he had fallen down like the rest of them, and now he was pretending as if he had been killed. And, but the enemy kept coming, and, though, and, and they, was, they were moving through the fields. He could hear that they were putting a shot into every fallen man to ensure that that person was dead. And so here he was living with this tremendous apprehension that any moment he would be shot to death. But suddenly... A convoy of ducks flew overhead and the attention of the soldiers were immediately diverted to the ducks. And in their excitement, they began running after the ducks to shoot at the ducks instead of at the fallen soldiers. And in the end, they stopped checking the field for the men that had been slain. And that's how uh, they left. And so this man was able to escape. And now he had in his heart a very special love for ducks. You can appreciate that because uh, his life was owed to their uh, entrance into that situation. It was Leonardo da Vinci that said, a life without love is no life at all. And Jesus reveals to us the essence of God's love. As a matter of fact, we could say that love really originates from the heart of God, for God himself is love. And John tells us that there's no greater love that can be demonstrated that a person would lay down their life for their friends. And Jesus obviously was speaking to the disciples when he said that in the upper room, and he was telling them that he was about to lay down his life for them. Can we ever fully grasp the depth of God's love for us? That he would be willing to lay down his life for us? Jesus says this to all of us here. My command now is this. Love each other as I have loved you. How, how does God love us? He loves us so much that he's willing to lay down his life for us. And you and I need to love each other to that same degree. We must be willing to give up our lives for the sake of those that God has called us to love. Earlier in his gospel, Jesus demonstrates that love by doing what? He humbles himself, he wraps a towel around his waist, and he walks 
along washing his disciples' feet. Remember, they were arguing, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And nobody had, you know, bowed down to do this servile task. And yet Jesus, whom they said that they were following, now demonstrates to them the extent of that kind of love, serving each other. And then he leaves them in chapter 13 with this amazing command. Notice what he says, a new command I give you, love one another. Now the Bible does teach us to love, but here he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now that's the really challenging part. How does Jesus love us? He loves us unconditionally. He loves us completely. So he's, he's loving us with this divine kind of love. And it's that challenge in our lives that you and I need to learn how to love each other in this manner. By this, Jesus said, will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So the, the, the chief characteristic of truly being a follower of Jesus Christ is that you and I would demonstrate a love for one another in the family of God. Pretty challenging. So the evidence of a genuine faith in Christ literally is demonstrated by the degree that we show love for each other. I mean, we could say that we have faith, but the reality is if we don't love one another, we're not really evidencing biblical Christian faith. You know, it's interesting that a Greek historian by the name of Lucian, writing in the second century, between 120 and 200 AD, observed the way Christians were relating to each other. And this is what he wrote. It's incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. They first, their first legislator, Jesus, has put it in their heads that they are brethren or they are family. Isn't that beautiful? That you and I would begin to think differently, that we would shift our thinking and understand that every child of God is my family member, is my sibling, is my brother, is my sister, is my mother, is my father. I need to treat them with that kind of love. We're a part of God's family. And people, when they see us treat each other like that, they begin to see that inner transformation of heart that produces this change in our external behavior. We become like Jesus. We love like Jesus. And yet, as we know, times of difficulty are often moments in our life that show us what's truly within the human heart. Isn't that true? How we handle under pressure. And often in trials, you know, we may have feelings of abandonment that can overwhelm us. Believers sometimes are tempted to turn away from God and allow their minds to be closed towards him, possibly blaming God for not caring because they're in this terrible situation. You know, I, I don't know if you realize this, but Peter, there's almost an echo in, the, in this letter of Peter to what Isaiah wrote, particularly in the latter part of the book of Isaiah, from about chapter 40 to chapter 66, when God says to the prophet, I want you to comfort my people. Because the people now had been warned earlier in the book of Isaiah that they would go into exile. Now they were in exile, and they were wondering, you know, where is God in my, my, this, uh, this sense of being far away from the place where we worship God? Where is God in my exile? Where is God in my trial? And maybe we might be asking ourselves that question right now. Where is God in the midst of the challenging experiences that we're having right now in our personal lives? We may question that. And so Peter, like Isaiah, is speaking words of encouragement and comfort. And I think we need to hear the, these powerful words. I, I, I do believe that there's moments in all of our lives that we need words of reassurance. How many say that's true? I need a word of reassurance. I need a word of encouragement. I need a word of comfort. I need to know that God, you're still there. You still care. You, you, you still love me and you're, you're, you're concerned about my well-being. And so Peter now is gonna remind us that God's promises are actually eternal and they're gonna endure in spite of the trials that we are experiencing in our lives. So, here in 1 Peter chapter one, we're gonna pick up from verses 22 all the way to chapter two and verse three. 
And I think we have a, earlier we've been challenged just previous to this to live a holy life, to be holy as God is holy. Now he's going to shift us away from our focus that's directed towards God to how that plays itself out in our relationship to other human beings. You know, sometimes it's easy for us to say, I really love you, Lord, who is invisible, and we have a lot harder time loving people who are visible, right? It's a lot easier to love a perfect person than to begin to love imperfect people, especially when the imperfect people are pushing back and they're not cooperating. So we can see that these words now that Peter's going to share are going to move us from, you know, God's calling to be like him in holiness to what does that really mean living it out as we relate to other people. And so here we're going to see in this um, few verses, Peter's laying down two commands, two imperatives, two uh, words that would express to us that you and I need to embrace, that we need to act upon. And I want to take a look at that. And the first command that he's giving us, and he's talking to people who have experienced God's grace, is to love one another sincerely in one translation or earnestly, as it says in another. Uh, It's interesting, we, we have to be commanded to love. It's not, that's not part of our human nature. That's part of God's nature. You know, God can't help himself. He just loves us. God is love. That's his nature. But you and I can say, no, we have a, you know, prior to coming to Christ, we have a sinful nature. Our nature is not primarily clicked to, our, our, our default switch is not clicked to love. Our default click, uh, switch is clicked to self-centeredness and self-preservation and self-concern. Isn't that true? And it's about what I want. And yet love is the very opposite of that. Love is always thinking about the other. Whereas so often in our lives we're thinking about ourselves. And So now we're going to be told, I want you to love. I want you to start shifting the way you're going to operate. You know, the nature of human beings is that we're fickle. We're highly emotional. We're up, we're down, we're encouraged, we're discouraged, right? We're happy, we're sad. We're all over the map. Is that true? That's the way we are. Uh, We allow our emotions many times to guide us in how we're going to treat other people, right? I mean, if, you know, if we're upset, we're not going to treat people as nicely as if we're real happy and feel very generous. I mean, we're letting our emotions many times dictate how we're going to treat people. And yet we're now being challenged here to demonstrate a kind of love that's consistent and that moves past just our emotion. As a matter of fact, I would argue that when we really start loving people the way God loves people, it moves past our emotions. As a matter of fact, the real test is is when you're not happy with the other person and you're unhappy with them, that you can still do what's best for them in spite of what they're doing to you. Isn't that what God's love is like? Of course it is. So let's take a look at these texts. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. The NIV makes it seem here that because we've experienced this purification, that we now can be obeying the truth or that we that we now actually have already attained this love. But, you know, other translations, that, you know, the Greek idea behind here, uh, and many of the New Testament scholars, not all of them, but many of them think that the idea is that love is the purpose of the conversion, not just uh, the expression of their conversion. And what I mean by that is that part of our development of faith if, if faith is beginning to trust God, the maturest expression of our faith is that we have now learned to love other people, especially the family of God. That's powerful. In other words, I can tell if I'm growing spiritually by the level of how I'm treating other people. That's what I'm trying to get at. You know, Karen Jobes writes, righteous behavior towards others defines love. For Peter, obedience to the truth of the gospel is not merely intellectual assent to doctrine, but must result in a transformation of how Christians treat each other because moral transformation is a central purpose in Christ's redemption. What she's saying is, if we've really experienced God's love, it'll melt our hearts and we'll become more loving. You know, there'll be something that's transpiring. There'll be a transformation in our life. 
Wayne Gruden agrees that this is a post-conversion work of grace which we're participating in as believers. The sense of the verse is, therefore, once you have begun to grow in holiness so that you have a genuine affection for one another, make your love for each other earnest, deep, and strong. This is Peter's first specific application of the general commands to holiness is in verses 13 to 21. That's in chapter 1. It's a reminder that one of the first marks of genuine growth and holiness in individuals and in churches is earnest love for fellow Christians. It also gives encouragement from human personalities far from being immutably fixed. I love this. Early in life can be dramatically and permanently changed through the power of the gospel. Now, you know, if you study psychology, many times people will argue that, you know, who we are, that's it. We're just kind of locked in from a child, and then we can't change after that. And leaves very little room for development. Now, you know, it's true that, you know, we all have personalities, and we all have predispositions and temperaments and all of that. But the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring about a huge transformation. It can move us from being a self-centered person to a very unselfish person. It can really change us. There can be major transformations in our lives as we come to Christ. The gospel does bring that about. You know, the other, uh, this past week I watched the movie, If I Can Only Imagine. Maybe some of you have seen that movie. Great story about Bart Millard, who's basically the lead vocalist and primary writer of Mercy Me. And, and it's a great story. And I did a little more research because how many know the movies many times deviate from the actual true story? They just want to make it more compelling, I guess. So I did a little more research into his life. And in the movie, of course, uh, Bart's mother abandons them. But in real life, what happened was his parents divorced when he was three years old and Bart went to live with his mom for a while but when she got remarried for the third time, she ended up sending him back to his father. And, and Bart's father, who had been a football star, had suffered a number of injuries, but had also suffered an injury when he was uh, working. He was struck. He was kind of working on construction. He was struck by a vehicle, and he suffered some brain damage and, uh, and did never emotionally related health in a healthy manner to his family, particularly Bart. Every time he got frustrated, he started beating him, and he became very physically abusive to Bart. And that does, is, is portrayed in the story. Now, what, what I'm trying to say is this, that later on, Bart's father comes to faith in Jesus Christ, and the change in his life is so dramatic that Bart himself is kindled in his own uh, understanding of Christianity, he comes alive, and, and he says this in one of his interviews to a magazine reporter, I guess I grew up thinking that if the gospel could, cha could change that guy, speaking about his dad, it could change anybody, and there's no denying it. And, and then he says, and then he went on from, to say that he went from being a monster to the guy I wanted to be like when I grew up. That's powerful. And as a matter of fact, because of that experience, it affected Bart's decisions, his choices, and not only kindled his own faith, but actually affected his spiritual journey in a very powerful way, which is really neat. Why am I saying all of this? Because I'm trying to remind us that the gospel brings about tremendous change in people's lives and it brings about such a transformation that it impacts the lives of other people. And that's exactly what we see in that story. Paul says it this way to Timothy. He's talking about the conflict there in the, in the church at Ephesus. And he sends Timothy as his delegate. And he says, he's telling them, or to devote themselves to myths. They were, they were teaching false teaching and they were devoted to myths and endless genealogy. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. And God's work is only advanced, which is by faith. In other words, it's all about faith. But then he says this, the goal of this command is love. Or the end result or the purpose of our faith is actually to produce love in our lives which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Notice that love changes the human heart. Love is what gives us a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's the outcome of the gospel of Christ at work in our lives. 
And Peter now, in this letter, is challenging believers to be actively involved in God's purifying work in their lives by doing what he's asking of in the word of the Lord. So that when the pressures come, that you and I will continually develop demonstrable care to other people. That you and I will keep showing love. That we will, and that we also need to realize that the trials that God are, is allowing in our lives or bringing into our lives are the very vehicles that reveal to us the areas in our lives that need to continually grow and develop. Often under pressure, we can see worldly attitudes surface. I've mentioned that. We can start blaming and criticizing and and then polarization becomes evident. And you know, one of the saddest things is when, when uh, I'll just say it to this way, when, when people who are believers start fighting with other believers, or when relationships get torn apart, or when marriages you know, that are from, in Christian homes you know, get, tear apart, we, we, we say, well, where's the love? Where, you know, if we have genuine faith, where is the love? Where is the forgiveness? Where is this development that could happen in our lives? And Howard Marshall, uh, New Testament commentator, he says this, time and again, the weakness of the church in facing the problems of the world lies in its own internal dissension. In other words, uh, we don't handle these problems well. We, 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 we become uh, torn apart. He goes on to say, what is more worrying is the way in which Christians tend to divide over issues of peripheral importance, taking rigid stance on manners in which scripture has nothing to say or is ambiguous. You know, a lot of times we fight over things that really have no eternal value. That's what he's trying to get at here. He says, and more worrying still is the failure of Christians to love one another and so create the atmosphere in which some progress might be made toward the resolution of conflicts. Let's face it, you know, when people become unforgiving, it's kind of hard to restore relationships. What he's challenging is the condition of our heart. How hard are we going to allow our hearts to become because of challenges in life? And so the command to love is grounded in something that's eternal. It's God's word living within our human souls. And so in the very next verse, he says this. For he, he's, he's commanding us to love, but then he says, for you have been born again. This is why you can love like this. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So he's saying the reason why you and I can love like God loves is because when you and I became born again, God's word became quickened within us and the, the, the DNA of God was birthed within our soul, that Christ becomes formed within us, as Paul says. Remember he prayed to the church in Galatia, he said that your, your life could be, that Christ could be reformed in you. In other words, that Christ could be developed in you. And if Christ is growing inside of you, what's growing inside of you is love. That's what he's telling us here. And then he goes on to say, for all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. You know, I first read this, I go, how, why is this connected to love? And why is Peter quoting uh, the book of Isaiah? Because this is being quoted from the book of Isaiah. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this was the word that was preached to you. So how is Peter connecting this concept together? Well, what he's reminding his readers and also us is that this internal transformation of our lives is coming through God's eternal imperishable word. Consider all the things that they were dealing with. All the problems. We can go all the way back to the Israelites in exile. We can go back to Peter's first century readers who were, you know, outside in exile. Or come back to the 21st century where you and I are facing trials of many kinds. And what we need to understand is all of these difficulties are transitory. They're temporary. They're not eternal. But what's inside of you and me as a child of God is eternal in nature. It's going to endure forever. So the trial that you're in is going to fade away, but that which is within you, the word of the Lord is eternal. And it's enduring. And it will sustain you and I during this trial. That's why it's so important. Paul Actemeyer shares this insight in encouraging remarks. He said, while the citation from Isaiah confirms the imperishable and abiding nature of the word of God, which is the seed by which Christians have been born again, the contrast between what is transitory and what is permanent 
embodied in the quotation would be highly appropriate for a beleaguered community of Christians facing what gave every appearance of being the permanent, even eternal power and glory of the Roman Empire. What is he saying? He's saying, how many know that Rome was called the eternal city? It's because it lasted so long. I mean, you know, Rome was birthed in 800 BC and, you know, that city continued on for over a thousand years. And I mean, it's still going on today, but not as an empire. But can you imagine? It just seemed like it would endure forever. But the reality is it didn't. And the glory, he goes on to say, this, in such a situation, the announcement that the glitter and the pomp and the power of the Roman culture was as grass. In other words, I mean, what looks so permanently one day would just be like grass. It would fade away. When it's compared to God's eternal word spoken in Jesus Christ. Available through the gospel, preached and accepted by the Christians in Asia Minor would give them a courage to hold fast to the latter while rejoicing in the former. Even the hostility of that overcoming power becomes more bearable when its ultimately transitory nature is revealed and accepted. So what is he saying? Often in our struggles, we look at our weaknesses rather than God's abiding power and strength. How many of that's true? Usually we look at ourselves and go, I can't do this. And I'm saying, stop looking at yourself. Look to God, look to his word. It's the, that's what's going to sustain us. We often falter because what is coming against us seems so powerful and, and momentarily it may be powerful. But when we're building our lives upon God's word, which will long endure, whatever we're faced with today will one day be gone. What am I telling you? I'm saying hang in there. What's inside of you is eternal. What's passing through your life right now is temporary. It's gonna go by. It'll eventually endure, even though it seems very powerful in the moment. I think we need to be reminded of this, especially in a time like this. You know, here we are 14 and a half months into COVID, right? Or at least 14 months into COVID. And it seems to, we're back to the restrictions. I mean, this, we're going, when is this ever gonna end? And when we're younger, this feels like this is a forever thing or this is a permanent thing. Or, you know, can I just say, you know, studying history, there's been far worse times than this by a long shot. And I just want to encourage us today, hang in there. What's inside of you is far greater than what's happening around you. So don't let that define you. Don't let the temporary define you. Let the permanent that's inside of you, the word of the living God define you as a person. What is anchored on God's word is that which is eternal. What sustains us in these challenging moments is that we have a spiritual life that is eternal. And that's what should sustain us. But let me move on just to my second point, is to grow in Christ by craving God's word. So first of all, he tells us, I want you to earnestly love each other as brothers and sisters. And you can do that because that which is in you is eternal. But now, he says, I want you to crave that word. I want you to long for it. Just like you're earnest about loving each other, I want you to be earnest about the ingest, ingesting the word of God, taking in the word of God. We're directed to, to our focus and desire in life and what it ought to be. Peter begins by stating it negatively. I think this is fascinating. We're to put off certain unloving behavior. We gotta take it off like we take off our clothes. You know, we're told what we should embrace and what we should get rid of. We're now challenged to put aside things in our lives that would hinder God's love from flowing through us. How many know that when you're a child of God, there's moments when we're not so loving? Anybody here can say that's true. There's been moments I've not been so loving. Okay, so what's hindering that non-loving behavior? Like, what, what, I mean, love, that loving behavior, what's stopping me from being so loving? What's stopping me from having such an amazing relationship with my brothers and sisters? Well, we're told what to get rid of here and it starts in verse one of chapter two. He says, therefore, in light of what I've just said in chapter one, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Now, everything he lists there are things that are destroying healthy relationships. Every one of those things he lists, that's, those are the culprits that destroy relationships. And these are the opposite of what true love is. Now, 
The first thing that we need to address in our lives is this issue of malice. And R.C. Sproul describes malice as a purposeful desire to wound or hurt another person. And I think when we, when we have this kind of a spirit, a, a spirit of malice, why are we wanting to hurt other people? Usually because we're probably hurt. Usually because we're probably wounded somehow in our life or we're offended and it's the idea of striking back. And yet, one of the cornerstones of genuine Christian faith is the idea of forgiveness. Isn't that true? You know, considering our experience of God's forgiveness in our own life, I believe uh, a spirit of forgiveness must become the central element of our lives. I want you to think of the Lord's Prayer for a minute. One of the most important tenets in that prayer is forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Isn't that what it says? And, you know, when you and I experience God's love and experience God's forgiveness, we can become a channel of God's love and God's forgiveness. And we need to do that. Otherwise, we won't have healthy relationships. Uh, Jesus tells us that we have to forgive. And then Peter, the remaining list that Peter's giving us are all expressions of that malice. Deceitfulness is born of malice. Deceit involves a definite attempt to distort or hide or undermine the truth. It's done intentionally, Sproul says. Hypocrisy is a form of deception as a person's trying to appear to be something other than what they really are. You know that word hypocrisy comes from the Greek uh, theater where they would, you know, the old ways they would have somebody on stage and they'd play more than one character, the same actor. And they, all they would do is change the mask. They'd have a mask and they put, you know, a, a happy face or a sad face. They were hiding behind a mask. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. You're hiding behind a mask, you know. And so we're being challenged here not to do that. We're, we're being challenged to be authentic and sincere. Thomas Schreiner says, Envy is also contrary to love, for instead of desiring the best for others, it hopes for the downfall or prefers the advancement of oneself in, 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 in spite of or for, to the joy of others. In other words, we, we don't want their joy. We want ours. We, we're not interested in them. We're interested in us. You see, that's the problem with envy. And then he goes on to say, slander is not limited to spreading false stories about other people, but also about disparaging others. In other words, we put them down by what we're saying. We're not speaking highly or well of them. The key to continued transformation in our lives is to continue to ingest God's word. Now, I use that word ingest for a reason. Ingesting means taking it in, taking the word of God in. Listen how Peter writes here. He says, like newborn babies crave. See, that's where we're getting this idea. Crave the word of God. Crave the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. While other New Testament texts use the idea of milk as a negative concept, remember it says when you ought to be spiritually mature, you should be eating meat, but you're still babies, you're drinking milk. That's kind of in a negative connotation. Paul says that to the Corinthians. But here's what we need to understand. Peter's not making this a negative thing. He's made it a positive thing. What do you mean? Because what he means by this text is he says, I want you to have the same desire for God's word that a baby has for milk. Now, how many know when you have a newborn, uh, if you've ever had a newborn in your house, they have a tendency to let you know when they're hungry. Anybody know that? And uh, they'll let you know at all kinds of times of day or night. And they'll start crying out for that milk. Isn't that true? They'll just start screaming. They, that's because they have an intense desire to be fed. They'll let you know by communicating that they want to eat now. And he's basically saying that you and I should have that kind of intensity or craving or longing for God's word, just like a newborn baby desires milk. That's what Peter's trying to get across to us here. I love what uh, uh, GDN Kelly says in his commentary in 1 Peter. He's he says, the suggestion is that the power of this perceptual metaphor is best served by translating, since you have tasted that the Lord is good. But he, he says, the Lord is delicious. Now, think about it. Of all of the sensory metaphors, tasting is the most intimate and the only one that involves ingestion. And then he says this, seeing God Hearing God, even touching God. Now, I know God's a spirit, but he's, just, he's talking about our physical senses. 
they do not carry the powerful connotation that tasting implies, making the experience of God internal to oneself. In other words, the, the, all the other senses are external. Tasting is the one sense that you have to take it in. And what he's basically saying, he says, taste and see, experience God. That's what that text means, experience God. Take God in, ingest God. And what are we ingesting is the word of God. Like this craving of the the word of the Lord is actually what's going to help us develop and grow. So how do I get to know God? How do I grow spiritually? I have to take in the word of God. How many realize that if we're not eating physically, our physical person will eventually get weaker and weaker and eventually die? How many know that's true? That's what's going to happen. But, you know, sometimes we're, it's interesting. We, we don't see the correlation in the spiritual life. If you and I are not taking in the word of God, we are going to get spiritually and spiritually weaker. And so if we're going to continue the journey of development and growth in our lives, we have to be taking in God's word. So we're encouraged here to receive the life of God by taking into our lives his very nature through his word. God is, God's word is soul food. It's what's going to nurture our souls. It's what's going to change our lives. It's, it's what's going to bring about transformation inside of us. But it's not just, you know, I'm reading it. It's more than that. And I love how James, James and Peter are going to say things very similarly here. James in chapter 1, I want you to notice that parallelism to what Peter's just telling us now. In chapter 1, verse 19, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, how many here, you know, that verse, when I was a brand new Christian, I got convicted. That, that was my number one convicting verse, James 1.19. I had it memorized. Because I, I, I tended to be quick to speak, slow to listen, and uh, quick to get upset. Maybe you don't have that issue. But that was my issue. So I had to focus on this text a lot. And I kept thinking about it, and I kept saying, I remind myself, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get upset. And I just kept reminding myself, this is something that I need to continually remind myself of. And it's a powerful verse. Because the very next verse tells you what happens when you don't listen. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And you know, what I notice is that when you and I are upset about things, it's usually about us. Anybody discover that? We're frustrated, we're upset, but it's because things aren't going our way. It's not working out the way we think it ought to. We, you know, it's, you know it's, it has a lot to do with you know, what we feel deprived of. We're upset about it. And here, instead of being patient and recognizing maybe God has the different idea of how he wants to do things, instead of getting all bent out of shape and wound for sound and frustrated and blaming and criticizing and you know, all the rest, maybe what we need to do is learn to trust God. Maybe what we need to do is allow you know, that trial that's in our life that James is going to tell us is, is supposed to produce endurance and perseverance and patience, you know. God wants to use these, these, this, the trial, the, the difficulty, the negative thing in our lives many times to develop something of real sustenance in our souls. But, you know, we just want our own way. It says, then he says in verse 21, get rid of all moral filth. And the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. So now he's talking about the word inside of us. He's, he's saying instead of behaving this way, no, take in the word of God. Crave that word. Let it get rooted inside of your soul. Let it become uh, it, what you become like. You know, there's a saying that what you eat you become. I think there's a tremendous truth to that. So what people are feeding their, their bodies, it affects the, the way their body's going to function. And, and what we're feeding our soul is going to have an impact on how we're going to live out our lives. And so he's telling us, this is what you need to feed your soul. Feed your soul on the word of God. But then James says it this way, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. You've got to act on it. You have to ingest it. You have to experience it. And the only way that happens is when you take it in and then you start acting on it. You know, we can read James 1.19 all we want to, you know, be slow to speak. 
But to act on it means, okay, I got to stop. You know, I got to listen. Stop, listen, and don't get upset. How many know that that can save you? How many have ever had a moment in your life where you saw a situation, you jumped to conclusions, you thought you had understanding of what you were seeing, and you, you're get, you got all upset now because you just told somebody something and they they're just seem to be doing the exact opposite. You want to run over them and just tell them, you're doing it all wrong. You've never been baited to do that, right? Okay, but think about it for a minute. Instead of doing that, you walk up calmly and you say to them, hey, I just noticed... Uh, that you're doing this, you know, like what's happening? Just ask the question. And then they begin to explain to you why they're doing what they're doing, and you realize, I totally jumped to the wrong conclusion. Anybody ever jumped to the wrong conclusion? But, you know, if you would have went over there screaming your fool head off and, you know, all upset, you know, parents do this to kids all the time, right? You know, they come barking in there, and the kid goes, I didn't mean to do this. This is what I was trying to do. The poor kid's trying to defend themselves, but we're all upset. No, maybe it's better to walk over and ask what's going on. You find out, oh, I see what they're doing, and actually, I think that's good. You know, then you would be so smart if you had been, what? Slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. How many can see that if you don't apply it, what good is that verse? But when you start applying that verse and you start doing that every single day, eventually that becomes a new default switch inside of your soul. And all of a sudden as a parent, you're not wound for sound all the time. Or as a boss, you're not upset all the time. Or as a citizen, you're always upset with the government all the time. Oh, I just threw that one in. Because I think there's a lot of people, they're uptight all the time. You know, we're all upset about this and that and the other thing. We're up in arms. We all got a voice. We got to right protests and do all this stuff. I'm going, whoa, slow down. Do you know all of the facts? Probably not. Then he goes on here. Notice it says in verse 26, in James he says, then God can begin to bless our lives. He says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Wow. How many, that's kind of a slap in the face. He's going, what good is it? Then verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. He says, look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Hey, you want, you want pure religion? You want to have a, 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 what a real relationship with God is all about? Take care of the needy. Love the people that need to be loved. Help those that need to be helped. And don't get caught up with the moral perverse, perversion of the culture that we're living in today. That's what James is telling us. So I think real love is expressed in practical ways. That's what James is telling us. So both James and Peter are explaining the way of spiritual growth and maturity. We know we're spiritually growing by how we treat people. You want to know how mature you are? How do you treat other people? That's the test. Now you'll find out how mature you are. As a matter of fact, do I love people the way God does? You know, Jesus, I didn't come in the world to condemn it. I don't know, I've been watching that series, The Chosen. I don't know if some of you are watching that right now. But I love it because, you know, it's, 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 it's just so good the way they're portraying Jesus because that's the way I see it. You know, you see the disciples, they got all of the prejudices of religious people of that time, and yet Jesus is helping them straighten them out to have a God consciousness and a God heart towards people, even when the people are wrong. Jesus is there to save the world not to condemn it. And should we not reflect the life of Christ? You know, one of the most profound aspects of the nature of God is love. And I think we have to become like Jesus. And if we're becoming like Jesus, we would become more loving. And John says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So, just like in the physical aspect of life, we grow by ingesting food in the spiritual arena. That's God's word. We feed and nurture our spiritual man by feeding our soul God's incredible word. It begins to produce growth, which is manifested to others in a loving way. And I love the story told by some South Sea Islanders who one day proudly dis uh, displayed their Bible to a Second World War USGI when he had landed on the beach. They said, look, we have a Bible. And the GI said, We've kind of outgrown that sort of thing. To which the islander smiled back and said to the soldier, well, it's a good thing we haven't. 
For if it was not for this book, you'd be dinner by now. They were cannibals. I'll help you out. Are we ingesting God's word? Are we developing intimacy with God? Are we growing more loving towards others? And how are we handling life's disappointments? Do we live with a sense that all we see is actually transitory and the ultimate reality is that which we don't see? I want to conclude with the story that R.C. Sproul shared. When he was a young seminary student, he was preaching to his mentor. And he said, every time I preach, when you're in the audience, I feel intimidated because I'm afraid to make a theological mistake. And he said, I never forgot what my mentor said back to me. You know, there's a word that, in Latin that explains something very powerful. Corum Dio is a two-word phrase that means literally before the face of God. And the idea is that even though God's face is not visible to us, every second of our lives is lived before his face. We cannot see him, but he sees us. We need to cultivate a kind of God consciousness in which we realize that everything we do is done before the face of God. And so his mentor said, why are you worried about what, I'm, what I think when every day what you do and say is being seen and heard by God Almighty? And isn't that the truth? Everything you and I say and do is being seen by God Almighty. Let's stand as we pray in closing. So Father, as we come before your presence this morning, we have been challenged by the biblical text to love each other earnestly and to crave your word. And I just pray today, Lord, that both of these things would be true in our lives, that we would continue to develop and grow and that the end result of our faith would be demonstrable by the way we're treating the people around us, particularly believers, because Lord, your command to us is to love each other, even as you loved us. And Lord, that is, that is beyond our capacity to do. And so I pray right now that you will help each one of us, Lord, to receive the work of your spirit, the work of your word in our lives, this engrafted word, this amazing word that transforms the human heart. So Lord, help us to feed our souls that word. And Lord, help us not to just read it, hear it, but Lord, help us to put it into practice so that we can see that change in our lives and that we can begin to do the things that you're calling us to do so that we might spiritually grow and mature and be able to handle the trials that we're living in and the relationships that we're addressing. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.